Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is a fashion business guru, an icon of style, for many, the face of hashtag menswear, a voracious collector of garments, and now a digitally collectible Lego figure. Uh, that will make more sense later on. From New York City, it's Nick Wooster. Welcome, Nick. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> nice to be here. How are you? You know, I'm okay. I'm actually coming to you from Florida. At my, I'm at my brother's house for a couple of weeks. Um, you know, the weather is super iffy in New York in the earliest days of summer, and the weather is flawless down here. So it seemed like a nice way to kick it off by coming here for a couple of weeks. Plus, I love my sister-in-law and my nephews and my brother, and I enjoy spending time with them. That's one of the things the past year sort of taught me is how important and how nice it is to be able to have family and a place to go during a pandemic. I can well imagine uh, New York must have been pretty, uh, uh, what would you say, uh, a bit cramped during the pandemic? Well, cramped and maybe slightly terrifying. You know, I think at the very beginning, those early months, March, April, and the beginning of May, it's it was really unclear what was going to happen. And so by the end of the month, I was able to go. And, and as the summer started, I have to say the mood in New York anyway changed a lot. And in certain respects, we were maybe luckier than even people in California. We never went on another lockdown after those initial March, April, and beginning of May months. Um, and relative to Europe, we were also very lucky. So, but what was nice was the ability to be able to go a little bit. I didn't travel internationally, and I certainly didn't travel to the degree that my past seven or eight years have been. But it was just nice to be able to go and spend time with family and, um, you know, and, and sort of do something that I would never have done during a normal year, which was spend so much time with family. Hmm. Do you think the pandemic will change things in that respect, make us more likely to want to spend time with family and so forth? I mean... Yeah, I think that, you know, for for sure, we are forever changed. Now, many things I believe will, let's say, go back, but also many things will uh, change. And, you know, like one, and this is maybe a really stupid example, but, you know, the, the and Asian people have been doing this for years anyway. But I think that, you know, one of the out, positive outcomes of this past year was no one got sick, no one got a cold or no one really got the flu. And I think that if you find yourself in that way that you're sneezing, coughing, and generally not feeling great, but you're still able to go to work, you know, it will be necessary. And I think that people who are polite will wear a mask because they want to, you know, not sneeze and drip on people. And I think that that will be a nice outcome of this. I mean, nobody wants to wear a mask. But I think that nobody wants to be sick either. So it's definitely um, going to be, I think, a social thing that if you're not feeling well and you're and you want to be out, you've got you've got to do your part, which is to wear a mask. Mm, I think so. Uh, we'll get back to the health and um, wellness a bit later on. Um, now, your background—you're originally from Kansas, which, as I as a 
Norwegian who doesn't know much at all about Kansas takes to mean that it was pretty much a small town, not the sort of glamour of where you currently live. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was also, you have to think about time and place. I mean, I grew up in Kansas in the 60s and 70s, and in a way, it was a time and a place that no longer exists. And, you know, by that, I mean that, um, in a way, it was a kind of offshoot of the 1950s, um, a kind of, we had a television program called Leave it to Beaver, and it was very much... um, in a way like that, or the Brady Bunch, you know, something kind of wholesome. My parents never locked their house. They never put, they never locked their car. You know, if they would go to the mall or go downtown, they just left the keys in the ignition or the keys in the visor. Um, We never locked our doors, our front doors. We, we never had a key to one of the houses. I, the first house I grew up in the second house we did, but if we would go on vacation, literally they didn't lock the house. I mean, I think that's different. And of course that's different today. That's not how my, my father still lives in that town and you know, he doesn't do those things today, but it was a kind of time and place where you did things like that. We lived on the main street of town, which was, you know, again, very sort of like a TV show. It was like a big brick house and you know, my father was a mechanic and he was very middle. We weren't rich and we weren't poor. My mom stayed home um, and, you know, there were three boys. So it just, you know, it was, I would say Kansas was a great place to be from. Um, Kansas in the seventies was a great place to be from, but I don't want to go back. Um, And I really mean that because it's, you know, it's not the same. Today, those are the kinds of people, and I don't want to overgeneralize because there are many who don't, but it's the kind of place where places like Donald Trump are, you know, (laughs) happen. And so in a way, but it wasn't like that when I was a kid, or it didn't seem to be like that when I was a kid. It was very, I don't know, like common sense. You know, I I, I just think that it was, uh, you know, one of the things that it actually did was it gave me I think a kind of ethic, a work ethic that my father had, that my grandfather had, my grandparents had, my parents had, and everybody around me had. So that when I did move to New York, which, you know, as a gay kid growing up in the 60s and 70s, I was just marking time. I knew that I needed to get out of there, but that it would not be a place where I could sort of live. But I was also fortunate enough to have relatives who lived in New York well, and LA. And so I knew that my choices were to move to either New York or LA. New York seemed more glamorous and, and let's say easier because you didn't have to drive. Um, and it was seemed more exciting. And I was happy to be able to move to New York, which I did, you know, upon graduating from university. And, it, you know, so it was, so I was like, I just grew up in a sort of traditional, <laughs> easygoing suburban household. I mean, my parents didn't really know what to make of me or do with me. They knew that I was different by being gay, but they didn't, you know, have a obviously language to say that. And they weren't like, oh, you're perfect just the way you are. It wasn't like that. But by the same token, I knew that they weren't, that they didn't hate me or weren't going to disown me. And so get after coming out and doing those things that a lot of us do, it just, you know, it was, I look back now fondly on my childhood, but I couldn't wait to get out of it. Um, 
And so, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, how I sort of in, actually ended up working in fashion as a kid, I remember going to, I was in high school and there were, there was a kid, there was a rich kid from, you know, my hometown who had a Navy cashmere sweater. And I came home and I said, mom, I want a cashmere sweater. And she was like, listen, I'm happy to buy you a sweater, but it's not going to be cashmere. If that's what you want, go work for it. And so to me, that meant, okay, let me go to the source, the place where they sold those cashmere sweaters, which was the nicest store in town. And I went in one afternoon and said, hey, do you need any help on the weekends or after school? And they said, yes. And so that job, that first job that I had, which was the name of the store was called Joseph P. Roth and Sons Clothiers. It was a family family business. Um, you know, that gave me the beginning. The, I mean, that was my first job. And so all from my junior year of high school through college, I worked there. I mean, my college was not in the same town. So during the school year, I didn't work there. But during Christmas break or summer break, and then during the school year when I was in Salina, which is the name of this town, um, I worked nights and weekends or Saturdays. There was no Sunday. Um at this clothing store and they really gave me, I mean, so I must have worked there for 1976 to 1982. So, you know, six years, um, which is a, you know, in, in when you're only 20, you know, when you're starting at 16 years old is a long time of, you know, large percentage of your life. And Charlie, who was the, uh, the owner's son who really ran the store, you know, I'm so friendly with he and his wife today. Um, they gave me, it gave me, they really gave me the foundation of, of work. I mean, you know, coupled with my father, who was also a very industrious and a very successful, you know, mechanic, but he also, he, he also did other things too and started by real estate and different things. So he became successful in his own right, but he, you know, was also just, he had the most amazing work ethic. His mom, my grandmother, who was a seamstress, which is probably where some of the fashion stuff or the love of fashion, you know, comes from DNA wise. She too had a tremendous work ethic. So I was given really great role models around me. Um, I wasn't necessarily <laughs> the best, you know, employee, but I was so grateful that I had the opportunity to, to do that. Sounds like you got a, off to a good start, at least there. Uh, <laughs> did you sort of have a, a talent for picking the good stuff from that first moment you saw the cashmere sweater? Well, so it's, I mean, it's funny you say that. So, you know, again, I was a 16-year-old kid working at this clothing store. But in those days, um, salesmen would come into the store. You know, I mean, yes, they went to market. They went to buy, they went on buying trips in Kansas City, Dallas, Texas, and eventually New York. But in those days, salesmen would come into the store, the Gantt salesman or the uh, Ciro shirt salesman or Hart Schaffner Marks or these different brands that probably today don't really exist. Gantt, I think, does. Gantt certainly does. Um, yeah. And there were many other brands too. You know, it was a very preppy traditional store. Um, at any rate, they uh, the, the salesmen would come into the store, and so um, Charlie would, 
say, hey, Nikki, you know, what are the five best ties here? And there would be all these different swatches laid out. Or what are the five best plaids? Or, you know, which colors of cashmere sweaters do you like the best? And I would, and in those days, they would take the change out of their pockets and then lay them down on. So like, you know, you put all your change on the, the your selections. And I would do that. And Charlie was like, hmm, you know, he kind of understood that I had taste or as he called it, flair. Um, now I, you know, and so then this didn't happen the first year, but like at a point, I mean, I must have, it must have been in the years that I was in college, but I got to go on a couple of buying trips. One of them was in Kansas City, one of them was in Dallas, and then eventually one was in New York to help them buy for the store. Simultaneously, he would ask me to do displays like, Nikki, you know, fix, go put something in the windows, or, you know, I did Christmas windows one year. Um, but he gave me opportunities to, because he saw something in me that, let's say I didn't even see or didn't even know. I knew that there was a job called buyer, but it still didn't occur to me that that was what my calling was going to be. I studied journalism in school because there was no fashion at the University of Kansas. And I also didn't understand the idea that university was being, you know, was to get a liberal, necessarily to get a liberal education. Instead, I thought, oh, if you major in something, then that's what you should do. So there was a journalism school and one of the, you know, courses of study was advertising because again, it seemed glamorous and it seemed the closest to fashion. So, and it also seemed kind of easy because I wasn't really into getting, you know, intellectually challenged. So I, I worked at an advertising agency when I graduated from school, because again, that's what I had studied. And I thought that's what you were supposed to do. But af after doing that for a couple of years, I realized I was terrible at it. And I was also a terrible employee. You know, all the things that we accuse millennials of, of being today, I was like that, you know, almost 40 years ago. Um, I was entitled and I sort of thought that I shouldn't have to do the kinds of things that were being asked of me. Um, so I understand, I, you know, when they talk about like millennials in a negative way, I'm like, I was exactly the same way. Um, but you grow out of it, or hopefully you do. In my case, I guess I did. Um, but I also understood that being that working in advertising or working for an advertising agency wasn't, you know, wasn't really what I wanted to do. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And somebody said, what would you rather do? And I said, oh, I'd like to be a buyer. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, they're not just handing out buyer jobs because some kid wants to do that. Um, there's a way, there's a couple of ways that you can go about it. One is to be part of the training program, which usually sort of, let's say, started in September, kind of after after summer of, you know, when kids would graduate. And this was like March when I needed a job, March of 1986. This was at Saks Fifth Avenue. And they said, so they said, you know, one is to wait and be, and apply to be in the training program. The second way is to come and work in the store as an assistant department manager, that's like on the floor, kind of overseeing salespeople and moving a lot of merchandise. Um, and eventually, if you, you know, if you stand out, we may select you to be an assistant buyer. 
So I took option B and, you know, did that for a year and then understood that at Saks anyway, I wasn't going to be an assistant buyer anytime soon. But immediately, like when I had that realization, an opportunity came up to be an assistant buyer at Barney's New York, which was, a, in my opinion, an infinitely better store, especially at the time. And um, I mean, I look back today and I owe everything that I have or that came forward from that opportunity. Um, Barney's was owned by a family, the Pressman family, and it was, um, you know, arguably the most important retail store I think in the 1980s and early 90s. Um, and so anyway, I was lucky enough to be an assistant buyer working for a man named Peter Rizzo, you know, who worked directly with Fred Pressman. And I really believe that everything that I know today, I learned from them. That's a, quite a remarkable uh, trajectory on your career there. I mean, were you super confident and uh, <laughs> very forward leaning? You know, I wasn't, I wasn't. I mean, I'm one of the most, well, especially in, when I was that age, was one of the most insecure people that I know. I was also a huge drug mess. I mean, I was doing tons of drugs and going to clubs and, you know, burning the candle at both ends, which is what I thought you were supposed to do. Um, like living in New York and, and again, living in New York in the 80s, it was kind of the time, kind of, you know, let's say the days after Studio 54, but it was also from that, you know, it was like kind of, it, it was kind of still a, uh, a legacy of that. There were different clubs, but it was the same idea. And, you know, I did the best I could do to enjoy myself thoroughly at night as well as during the day. Uh, you know, and I was also, I look back today and understand how insanely lucky I was that I got to do it. And I think that so much of my early life and certainly that experience was dumb luck. I mean, I didn't set out to do that. I literally remember a woman who used to work at Saks Fifth Avenue walking into the store. She saw me just totally by chance. It isn't as though she sought me out. And she was like, oh, she's like, listen, I just, I, I left and I knew her from working at Saks in those days the main floor of Saks had like a little tiny men's department to one side. And then there was cosmetics next to it. She had worked in the cosmetics department and she was walking through men's to get to, you know, see her friends or where she used to work. And she said, Oh, I've gone to Barney's and I know that they're looking for an assistant buyer. You should, you should apply. And so I did, I mean, it wasn't, you know, and it was so not formal. It was like, Again, it was a different time. There certainly weren't webs. I mean, there was no computers, but there weren't websites or some you know formal way to go about it. It was word of mouth, and that's how so much of New York was in those days. Um, it was word of mouth. I guess that's part of the reason why you needed to be out and about was to sort of everything. Kind of apartments happen that way, jobs happen that way, and and it was a very fluid social way to be, which again is different today. It doesn't really exist. I mean, it does and it doesn't. People still network, of course, and people are still fluid. I mean, people still have interactions, but it was, I, I don't know how to describe it except to say that it was, it was easier. But I also understand today how insanely lucky I was 
to be sort of at the right place at the right time and either be stupid enough or smart enough or nice enough or, you know, naive enough to get, get this job. And, you know, and again, it didn't pay well. It was, um, it was hard. They were kind of scary and mean in my opinion, but, but it was an amazing opportunity. And, you know, I, again, that's kind of how the working culture seemed to be in those days. It was all a little bit scary. It was all a little bit terrifying, but you know, you, you persevered and we got through it and it was amazing. I expect today you'd have been sat at home in Selena, sending out your CVs, getting the odd rejection, but really with little hope of leaving that small town. Well, no, again, it was exactly the opposite. So, so I had an aunt and uncle that lived in New York and I knew two girls from the university of Kansas who had moved, who were a year older than me, who had moved to New York. And, you know, because, I mean, I knew them not well, but I knew them, they knew of me. Um, I called them and I said, Hey, I'm coming to New York to interview for jobs. And I really thought I'm going to give myself, you know, I had a little bit of money. When I say a little bit of money, I had saved some money working at the clothing store. Of course I spent, I've always spent all my money on clothes, but I had a little bit of money and I sort of thought, all right, I'm going to go to New York, save my aunt and uncle and let's see what happens. And if it happens (laughs) that I get a job, I'll stay. If it happens that I don't get a job, then I guess I'll go back to Kansas. That's really as far as I got. I didn't have a plan other than that. And this is what happened. I called these two girls, this one girl in particular, who worked in advertising. And she said, oh, great. Yeah, you. I'll definitely hook you up with HR. And I, I, I'll make a couple of phone calls. She, she then called me back and said, I have three interviews for you. One of the companies she was working at, and then two other ones. All three of those interviews landed job job um, uh, offers. And so by the end of that first week, staying in New York, I had three job offers and I accepted one. And that one was at the company she was at. So, which was also strategic. I mean, in that, okay, it's better to go somewhere where you know someone. It's like they all three paid the same amount, which was virtually nothing. Um, they were all three to sort of like do the same thing, which was to work in the the media department, working on a big package goods brand. Procter and Gamble was the uh, was one. But the other the other deciding factor was that my uncle. <laughs> this is really sort of embarrassing to admit, but it's true. But my uncle was the client. He was the president of one of the of of a big brokerage firm, and they were also. Uh, their agency was the same agency that my girlfriend worked at. So I took that job thinking I'll have a better, like it'll work out better for me there. And it did. (laughs) And then eventually because of, I'm sure because of my uncle, I got promoted quickly into being an assistant account executive working on Procter and Gamble at that agency. Um, And so, like I said, it was all kind of like easy, but, you know, but it was just kind of like, I just did the thing that was in front of me. And so it worked out. You think it was your inherited work ethic that sort of made you rise and and keep changing jobs? I do. I mean, I think that, you know, uh, I mean, people act like, um, 
you know, being ambitious is like a negative thing. I mean, I don't know, maybe they say that about women or, you know, people that are, but like the reality is, it's like, I think being ambitious is a good thing. And I was ambitious. I want, I was, and it was, of course, I was hoping that I could get more money, but we're talking about like $11,000 was the, was the opening salary. It wasn't like, you know, a year, which is, you know, a little tiny bit of money, not nearly enough money to live on. And of course my, my parents helped me somewhat and was, you know, and again, I was, I don't know how, but I was able to sort of live in Manhattan, uh, you know, in a apartment share situation. And, uh, it just, it just kind of worked out. And somehow, you know, when you're young and stupid, you just kind of figure it out. I mean, it wasn't like we were living well and spending tons of money on dinners and clothes and all the things that, you know, I do now, <laughs> but by the same token, you know, we had access and it was exciting and it was really fun. And then, and so yes, jumping jobs is what gives you more money because when companies, you know, they usually pay more to bring in people from the outside than they do from promoting people from within. And so I jumped around a lot um, because it kind of gave me leverage and, and, and also I have a short attention span and a super, uh, I get bored easily. I mean, it's been a trait of mine, I think from the time I was a kid in school. So I'm always looking for new stimulation, new, new things. And that's why the last seven or eight years have been so interesting to me because I get to do a variety of things and not get tied down to any one. But yes, in looking at my career, I would definitely say I am not one of these people that has a long stretch at a company. And to me, that's a positive, but to a lot of hiring people, it's a negative. Hmm. I suppose it does give you a sort of interesting CV because you've been hired and fired and started and quit. And where, where did you go on to from Barney's? Bergdorf Goodman. I was recruited to be the, you know, at the time it was a year before the men's store across the street from Bergdorf's had opened. And, Bergdor and the men's was still a, a, a part of a little part of the women's store, the main store. And so it was an opportunity and I didn't even, couldn't even imagine that I, and you know, when I was a buyer of Barney's, I was buying suits, which was fine, but not, let's say the most interesting, but the opportunity at Bar at Bergdorf's was to be the designer collections buyer to buy things like Giorgio Armani and, you know, Comme des Garçons and, Dries Van Noten and, you know, brands like that. So, and I knew that I wasn't going to be that buyer of Barney's because there was a, a guy who they loved there. And, you know, it just was, I, I knew that that wasn't going to be my path there. So I took, I went for the offer at Bergdorf's. Which was to buy the even better stuff. Right. Well, to buy what, what I felt to be more interesting and to make more money. And, you know, and there was a lot of prestige of Barney's, certainly. And there was certainly a lot of prestige of Birddorf. So it just kind of checked a lot of boxes for me. Sounds like you were landing the sort of really prime jobs at the best places to be at the time. At the time, you know, I mean, and then, you know, from there I went to Calvin Klein. And then from there I went to Ralph Lauren. So yes, you could say there was a tra trajectory, but by 1996, you know, after working at Calvin and then working at Ralph and in Ralph, I got to pivot and work in men's design as opposed to retail, which was again, a, an unusual step 
um, but again, very fortunate one for me. Um, I landed in rehab and I, and I was kind of at a, what I would say is the beginning of the next phase of my career, which was like a lot of, so in those early years from 1983 to 1996, it seemed like every job I ever interviewed for, I got. Starting in 1996, it became different. And I worked for a, a small designer, a friend named John Bartlett. And in the time that we started working together, uh, he had a very tiny men's business. And I you know, went on to sort of help him in every phase of it increase sales, help him with design, you know, help him just in any way that I could because he was really like a one man show. But in that period, that first year, we got an opportunity, he got an opportunity to be, um, to have a big Italian company produce and distribute his collection. So I helped him on that. And then a year later, we also designed a, a line that at the time was, was, sort of dying, but a bigger deal called Biblos. So there was like a, a lot of money. There was a lot of travel. And for five years, I worked with John to, you know, sort of build a very small business to something that became, you know, 10 times the size that it was when we first started working together. But by 2001, that business was already changing and our, you know, and it was like a relationship that needed to, you know, to also change. So I thought that's fine. All, you know, John, you keep working at your own brand and I'll get another job. 9-11 happened and I couldn't get the next right job. And so what that phase, I was 41 years old, that phase, those next nine years were definitely bleak and different and not anything like the successes that I had enjoyed in my 80s and 90s in the 80s and 90s um and i went on a little bit of a you know a circuitous path kind of hidden from view not anything that you would have any idea about today but i worked for you know a car dealership in miami i had to declare bankruptcy i ended up <laughs> leaving that job being moving to la working for a horrible nasty person uh, to help him design a men's collection. He was a nightmare after three months, got fired from that found, you know, myself like without a job again, and wasn't really sure what I was going to do and ended up working at Barney's in Beverly Hills, selling women's designer um, and doing a terrible job at that. But then meeting someone, then working for a, another designer. Then after two years getting fired from that, then working for a kind of big t-shirt company, that I worked at for the last three years of living in LA. And in those last three years, the, the brand was called Splendid, is called Splendid. And um, it was a huge deal at the time, women's contemporary mostly, but they had a small men's collection. You know, Oprah declared it one of her favorite things. And it was in every single department store. It was a, you know, couple hundred million dollar business. Um, I, I helped them designed their first retail store, um, helped them launch their website and, and manage that and, and do their, their marketing. And then, you know, they sold the company to VF. Um, and simultaneously, I was interviewing to be the men's fashion director at Neiman Marcus and Bergdorf Goodman. And, you know, after sort of seven or eight years away from that kind of life, 
you know, no one was more surprised than I was that I got that job. And, um, and so basically I left Los Angeles and landed in Milan and that first day of work, which was going to runway shows, because as a fashion director for a department store, you're sort of functioning as the eyes, ears, and voice of a store. Um, you know, I'd landed in New York and Scott Schumann and Tommy Tan both took my pictures that first day. And because it was, you know, going to, you know, walking, going to the shows, walking in and out. And, you know, and that changed the course of my life for the past now 11 years where we are today. And that picks up where people like you or anyone listening are going to know who I am is from that moment in January of night of 2010. It strikes me uh, sort of looping back to, well, quarter of an hour ago that what you have or the attitude you have is what we in Scandinavia call the Pippi Longstocking attitude, whereby she says, I've never done it before. So that will be okay. Cause you just went headfirst into all these things. Um, before we get back to the street style bit, uh, when you were, you'd passed 40, you were 41 doors were closing. It, things looked bleak. What was your mindset like then? You know, the thing was, so I had, you know, gotten sober in 1995. And the only reason I mentioned that is because what, what happened is that my experience of any way of, of not drinking and doing drugs is not the, the interesting part of the story is not not drinking and doing drugs. The interesting part of the story is that the problem around drinking and doing drugs generally, in my opinion, and many others, it has to do with this. It has to do with your thinking. You're thinking around things, you're, you know, how you hear things, how you think about yourself. And so, you know, in those years that I was living in LA, I was working on myself and I was becoming more content with who I was. And the fact that I wasn't in a glamorous or what I consider to be glamorous or even as lucrative as I had made, you know, 10 years before money-wise, that my I was getting okay with the fact that my life was perfect just the way that it was. And I'm con I'm 100% convinced that because that was really the first time in my life that that was true, and because I also really reconciled, or I really thought, all right, you know, I sort of had success in my 20s and 30s, and my, you know, fashion's a young person's game. I guess in my 40s, it's not, you know, it isn't my time. That's okay. That's why no one was more surprised than I was that all of the things that happened in my 50s were the opposite of what I thought was going to happen to me in my 40s. Um, but again, it's a kind of personal journey. It's like, you know, you can't, you can't tell someone how to, or I can't tell someone how to, you know, make it easier or better or faster. It just took what it took for me. And that's my journey. Other people maybe will have a different journey and, you know, their 40s will be incredible. And, and many of my peers and many of my friends, their 40s were some of their most dynamic, interesting, lucrative working years of their life. That was the opposite for me. And then I know a few people who've had, let's say, more problems in their 50s. Um, for me, it was the opposite. But everybody has, let's say, their time or, you know, everybody has their own journey. And so um, in hindsight, I'm convinced that it was 
because I was working on myself and because I was learning to be okay with who I was, you know, at that moment is what gave me, is what opened up the possibility to have the life that I have now. Hmm. So 50 years old, you're in Milan, you're stepping out of the hotel for a day of work, you're wearing a tweed jacket, cargo pants. I think I found the original photo. Um, you were posted on various uh, street style, uh, at that time it must have been Tumblr. Uh, I, th I think this was pretty much sort of at the start of what we call hashtag menswear and the street style explosion around that. Yeah. How did you find that? Well, at first I didn't even, well, okay. I was aware of Scott Schumann. I, I wasn't aware of Tommy Tan, but I was aware that there were people and I came, came to find out immediately who Tommy was, but I knew that like places like GQ on their website were start and New York times were starting to, let's say record, you know, people coming and going sort of giving a, a place for these street style pictures to, to be. So I was aware that there was this phenomenon, but I had no idea. And I didn't know what Tumblr was. I didn't even know what Tumblr was for almost another year. You know, in hindsight, it's like, how stupid was I? But it wasn't until February of 2011 that I was actually working at Bergdorf's and they, and well, no, I, I had set up a Google alert for myself early on because part of, you know, what I knew the job was about, I wanted to find, make sure that there wasn't anything written about me or being said about me that I didn't know about. So the, I would see things and I'm like, what's Tumblr? Like, I didn't even know what it was, but I, at first I thought it was like, I don't know, this thing that they were making fun of me or something. Like, I didn't really understand what it was, but by 2011, February of 2011, which I still, there was in my, I mean, I still wasn't even aware of Instagram at that point, but I, Bergdorf's had said, oh, we, 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 in their marketing department, they said, oh, we've started a Tumblr. We've hired an agency and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we have a few hundred followers and okay. So in those days I was smoking. So one morning, I don't really even know what happened, but I sort of like went to Tumblr was like create your account and I was like oh I can do that so like Nick Wooster was taken but I did Nicholson Wooster and I you know and I had like four or five pictures that I I guess I had on my computer because again there was nothing on the phone but they were on my computer and I figured out how to upload them to Tumblr and went and took a shower and when I came back there were it said that you have 1800 unread emails and I was like what the fuck happened and so in the time, in the 30 minutes that I, you know, took a shower, word got out that I'd started a Tumblr and I had 1800 followers because I didn't even know about setting up your alert. So it just like told me everything. And when I got to work that day, I got in trouble by Bergdorf's for starting a Tumblr. It's like, why would you do that? You're trying to like sabotage what we're doing. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like, how is it any different than Facebook or Twitter? Like, you know, it's an account, like a personal account. So that's the kind of stuff that went on. And again, in hindsight, that one was stupid. Maybe I've done other things like wearing shorts to work and, you know, 
getting in trouble because I broke the dress code of Nima Marcus. Like that one maybe is like on me, but like, I don't regret one minute, like doing what was, and, you know, and so that's part of the story also of how retailers, I believe, are in the, the predicament that they're in because they think like that. You know, they did not start to think ahead, you know, 10 years ago, 12 years ago about how the world was changing. And so I, I am very firmly convinced, and I'm sorry to say because it's going to affect a lot of people, but, you know, there. <laughs> The, the, the days of those department stores, much like the days of publications dominating, have changed. The balance of power is shifting. Mm. But for your personal brand, you became hugely well-known. You started an Instagram. I think you had something like a million followers. Well, I don't and have a million yet. <laughs> 835,000, but... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, looking at the street style photos from Pitiumo and in those years, I mean, there are a few faces that um, obviously the photographers were looking for. Uh, for a guy then past 50, I mean, guys past 50 don't expect that sort of attention, do they? Well, no, I mean, I mean, I think there's a type now that does, but you know, but no, and I never thought I would be that type. Um, but I guess that's what's just also so crazy about the whole, when I say the whole thing, I mean, the whole social media phenomenon, street style phenomenon, hashtag menswear phenomenon, all of those things that all, let's say, happened at exactly the right moment at the right time. And I really do, you know, sort of, I say that that period, 2010, January 2010, is when the stars were in alignment. I mean, they were in alignment for me personally, but I believe they were also in alignment for just, if it wasn't going to be me, it was going to be somebody else. But like that happened, you know, like that moment happened. I mean, in a way, a lot of that, I think is past, um, like street, it's kind of post street style. Like, yes, there. But, you know, like even that was starting to become, let's say, old news and, you know, has, in the same way that hashtag menswear became old news. And, you know, those kids moved on. And when I say kids, I mean, some of these young guys who were the sort of at the forefront of that had moved on and, you know, and are responsible for the sneaker thing. Like they moved on to that and what, you know, we call like Supreme and street style and those things. And even that's now moving on, you know, um, probably back to something closer to hashtag menswear. Um, which will not be the same, but, you know, we'll have, you know, I, I mean, you see it, I see it happening today. Like today in WWD, there was a story about tailoring, you know, and again, not that, I mean, tailoring is like the oldest thing in the world. And most people are never going back to wearing suits the way that they did. But what's interesting is that the pictures that they, that they shot their editorial pictures were exactly the look of 90s Giorgio Armani, which is like oversized, gigantic leg pants, the pants with tons of break. You know, it doesn't look like that super slim Italian hashtag menswear fit and look that we knew from 10 years ago. It's something closer to 90s Armani than it is to that. And so 
the, you know, it, it and it's not for everyone. Like, it's not flattering to me to look like that, to wear those kind of oversized clothes, to be swallowed by tailoring that fits like that. But it definitely, it seems newer than where we were, you know, nine years ago. What I thought was so great about that era was it took stuff like tweed jackets and brogues, sort of proper stuff, and updated it and made it totally cool. Absolutely. And, you know, but here's the thing. Those clothes, brogues, tweed jackets, you know, rep striped ties, Oxford cloth shirts, that's what I wore 40 years ago when I was a high school kid. You know, it was good in the 70s. It was good in the 80s. It was good in the 90s. Every And the, and the difference is, the, let's say Harris Tweed's been a constant. Moon, you know, tweeds, moon fabrics have been a constant. It's the proportions that have changed. And those are what will always change. And that's what makes the reason for buying something new. Lapels widen or shrink, you know, shoulders, you know, get bigger and padded or are more natural. You know, jackets are longer or shorter. Um, pant legs are fuller or slimmer. That's that's what makes it interesting because the fabric may be the same and many of the fabrics are the same, but it's the way they're cut and the way they're, you know, put together. Just as an aside, you mentioned Harris Tweed. Now, in I think it was 2004, Nike were credited with sort of saving Harris Tweed when they placed a massive order because they were making shoes with tweed. Now, I think that order was for about 9,000 meters. Now, I believe you, when you were working at J. Crew, a few years later, J.C. Penney placed an even bigger order. Right. Well, that's what they, that's what the Harris Tweed Authority told me. And I, I don't remember what it was, but here's what you have to understand. JCPenney, which still exists, although it's a shell of its former self, you know, in, in the year that I worked there was, uh, it was, I think a $15 billion business. Um, half of it was private label. And that's what I did is I worked on the private label part. So seven and a half billion dollars of private label. Men's was, I think, something like 30% of the total store. Um, but again, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it was a lot. And for JCPenney, they used to talk about million unit programs. So, you know, not, not tweed coat, not tweed jackets, but things like polo shirts, t-shirts, jeans. They would, you know, their goal was to make a million of something, and that's how they could get such amazing prices. And they had 1,100 stores in those days. So, as a like total placate, you know, totally placating me, they did what they called like basically a test order, where if they're buying, you know, 30, 50, 80,000 of something, they bought something like 9,000 jackets and they did it across two swatches and you know it was because it takes about two meters to make a jacket they were buying you know eighteen thousand meters of fabric you know two different articles it was things like that that we could do we did the same thing with with uh, cashmere sweaters we did it with camel hair jackets you know they would make tiny orders which for them were inconsequential because they didn't put it in that many stores but 
obviously to these suppliers, it's a huge thing. And that's what's amazing about the opportunity to work in sort of big retail like that is because you can do things that could, you know, really help these kind of uh, industries, you know, these small businesses or give people opportunity. And that's what was such an appealing part of that job. And I'm so sad, so sorry that it didn't, you know, ultimately work out. How didn't it work out? So the guy who hired me, his name was Ron Johnson. He was the um, head of Apple Retail. He's basically the person who, with Steve Jobs, invented Apple Retail. He had come from Target before that. Um, he was hired to reinvent JCPenney, which is a mid-level, you know, bottom-tier department store that, when I was a kid, every kid, there was no J. Crew, there was no Gap, there was no, you know, none of these sort of brands that we know today in the United States, everybody, every middle-class kid bought their clothes at either Sears, JCPenney, or Montgomery Ward. And they were huge catalog businesses too. Um, and they were the sort of the backbone of middle-class retail in the United States. So JCPenney was really, and it was always, let's say the nicest one of the three. Um, he was brought on to reinvent JCPenney. And that's what what I and a group of many of us, some from Apple, some from other, you know, places, Gap, J. Crew, Abercrombie and Fitch, were put brought in to do. And um, I got to oversee design first in menswear, and then they promoted me to oversee the entire store: men's, women's, kids, and home. And it was the most amazing year of my life. At any rate, <laughs> it didn't work out, and the board fired Ron, and then subsequently fired me and all of us that were brought on a week later. Ouch. Well, okay. <laughs> it was, you know, it was again, one of those things like in hindsight, I mean, it was the most amazing year of my life and I'm so grateful that I got to do it, but I'm also so grateful that I'm not doing it today. It's like, then they went back to what they were doing. And so they didn't, you know, they weren't interested in changing. So it, I couldn't have been helpful to them in that iteration, in that go around. So I'm grateful that I got to leave. Looping back to um, to the whole Instagram uh, success story thing again, um, once your popularity was on the rise, did you feel a very strong pressure to, to keep coming up with new stuff, to keep impressing? Um, were you taking yourself more seriously? Well, I mean, I'm not going to lie and say that I'm not, that I wasn't, I'm not aware of what, you know, what the opportunity was and that, yes, you know, <laughs> probably in order to keep getting, you know, my picture taken, I had to keep doing something different or interesting or, you know, you couldn't rely on, let's say the old, same old thing. Now, many people continue to do that and maybe they do just fine. But it actually is better for me because I've always been into clothes and I've always been into, you know, changing or experimenting or pushing boundaries or, you know, so for me, it was natural. It was just like, okay, I got to keep going with this. And I was happy to do it. But no, I wouldn't say I took it more seriously. I mean, I understand today that um, that thing, that Instagram and what it offers, I used to be very take it or leave it about it. But especially in the, this past year with the pandemic, it's become my primary source of income. So 
I need to, I do need to take it more seriously because it's like, it's what's allowing me to continue to move forward. Have you actually taken the step up to become a proper influencer now? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I don't know what that means. I mean, I suppose there are people who would call me that. I don't know that that's a term that I would use, but, um, but sh I mean, if, if, if by, you know, Yes, probably most people would say that's what I've done. I think it's sort of pretty much the number one career uh, choice for teenagers today to um, basically live their lives on social media, lots of free stuff, being paid to holiday. Uh, it's sort of quite a long way from, say, where you started out. Well, it is, and it, it scares me a little bit, um, slash – why not? I mean, there's a part of me that it's it's a very, I mean, I have a nephew who would like to do that. And he does see sort of like what I, let's say, get. And it's it's very appealing. And I, who am I to say that you shouldn't want to do that? I, that's not, it's not my place. The only thing that I would caution and the only thing that I would sort of recommend to him and to any other person, young person interested in pursuing this kind of thing is okay but like what's your plan b like you know if you're not on that platform or if the platform kicks you off or if the platform closes you know if it folds because like tumblr is a perfect example if i'd only if i put all my eggs in the tumblr basket i'd probably be starving today i knew enough to know that like and well no 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 i didn't know enough i wasn't it wasn't a, a strategic plan on my part i was more pissed at like oh fuck when Instagram first came up, I'm like, oh, fuck, is that like another thing that I have to do? But Instagram is an amazing tool. Like, it's so fun. And I enjoyed every step of the way becoming, you know, just using Instagram. Like, it was fun. It was like Tumblr was fun. Um, I don't understand TikTok. And well, I mean, I understand it. It's just I don't dance or lip sync. So it's not, you know, interesting to me. But I see it's entertaining and I and I see a lot of TikToks, mostly through Instagram or people sending them to me. But um, the same with Snapchat. I mean, uh, you know, I've, I've had conversations with people on Snapchat. Um, most of them are not publishable for work, but they're you know, but it's like, OK, it's like another way to hook up with people or it's a way to send dick pics or it's like or it's a funny way to communicate with like children meaning like my nephews when they were really young, but like it's it, to me, it's not as compelling as Instagram has proven to be for now 10 years. Um, and I know that there will be other platforms um, and, you know, and as they happen as, you know, and TikTok's a, a, a force, there's no, I'm not questioning its importance. Um, and like I said, I'm more of a passive observer on something like um, TikTok, but you know, my point is that, you know, for these kids, I just hope that they have something to back it up. Like, do you have, and in my case, I know what my history was. Like I worked in retail and I worked in design and I worked with brands. And so to me, this was like, has the, the past 10 years has been a kind of perfect way to, you know, to go into my final act of, you know, of career. Um, 
And there are plenty of young kids who have been successful that maybe didn't have that history to back it up. And that's great, but it's kind of like being um, you know, a rapper or a star athlete or, you know, yes, there are people who are gonna do that, but most people don't or aren't successful that way. So, you know, or like an actor, like many actors, you know, also have to work wait tables or bartend. So I can imagine that that's probably a likely outcome for a lot of these kids is that they may want to have that kind of career, but they're probably going to have to fall back on something else too. Hmm. Now I mentioned in the intro that you're a voracious um, collector or maybe consumer of garments. Um, and you said that uh, your style, your buying, your changes all the time. Are there any constants in the, the Worcester world of garments? Well, you know, I think that what's so interesting is that, yes, the constants are that really classic things, and maybe my definition of classic and someone else's definition of classic are two different things, but things that are solid, navy blue, black, you know, gray, heather gray, charcoal gray, um, white, khaki, or military green, those basics are have always been and will always be the foundation of any wardrobe that I've ever had or will have. Um, of course, things change around it. Pink shorts, sparkle, you know, sequin shorts, skirt shorts, you know, skirt pants. But at the end of the day, it's always grounded with brogues, you know, derbies, like classic, you know, Goodyear welted shoes you know, alligator belts, white shirts, you know, they could be poplin, they could be oxford cloth, they could be buttoned down, they could be straight collar. But a lot of those basic things are the foundation. I mean, really a brand like Comme de Garçon, if you really look at it season after season, time after time, it's always based on blue and white shirts, <laughs> you know, heavy English, you know, Goodyear welted shoes, gabardine, fabrics in navy, sometimes navy, always black. Um, and those are constant, like they will always, and they were classic 30 years ago, and they will be classic 30 years from today. You know, I've always had a peak coat in my rotation. So, you know, and that could be Ralph Lauren, it could be, you know, Xenia, it could be, I mean, it could be, you name the brand, it could be Jill Sander, it could be OAMC, but I've always had peacoats as part of my wardrobe sort of the army standard uh really the ones that are never unfashionable but unfashionable but um they just keep rolling out absolutely and again the the difference is always proportion it's like the lapels might be bigger the overall fit may be roomier the shoulders may be wider but it's like it's always the same basic thing and yes so much of menswear does come from uniforms. Um, it has informed, you know, how we look, you know, since the beginning of the 19th century, uh, the uh, 20th century, and it certainly uh, is true today. Hmm. So I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, if you're buying clothes all the time, <laughs> how many, I mean, what is your clothes storage like? 
Well, let's put it this way. I moved into a two bedroom apartment and I took the second, the, the master bedroom, the bigger bedroom and turned that into a closet. I kitted the whole thing out with shelving and, you know, racks and, and it, it is maximized for storage. And I keep things in storage the opposite season. So I have, you know, for a New York apartment, I have a lot of clothes. Um, I get rid of a lot, I acquire a lot, but I I definitely have a lot of clothes. What do you think your oldest piece is? I mean, the, the oldest piece you bought yourself. I mean, it's probably a pair of tricker shoes from the, you know, from the early 90s. Hmm. I, times I don't keep things that long. Um, you know, part of it is because of fit, because of... I mean, I'm constantly going up and down in my own weight or being more muscular or less muscular, you know, things get slimmer, things get oversized. I just don't like the fit of something after a while. But, you know, I, I probably have a, a Brooks Brothers button down shirt that's that old. Um, I definitely have an alligator belt from 1995 when I worked at Ralph Lauren, um, a few pair of trickers. Um, uh, I had a, I had a couple of pieces from the eighties that I got rid of in the past, uh, three or four years. Okay. Do you find that having so many clothes makes it a bit hard to sort of get dressed in the morning? It's a fucking disaster. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a disaster for packing. That's for sure. Because if going on a trip is the worst for me, because I never know what I'm going to need or want or feel. And so I, my fix, my solve for that problem is to just bring more. Um, obviously, summer is a lot easier than winter in terms of a season to plan for. Um, but actually, getting dressed in the morning is not hard. I, I really don't think, first of all, I never think about what I'm going to wear. I never think about it ahead of time. I sometimes think about it if I know that there's like some major event or something but like just the day in day out even if it's like a photo shoot or some i just like figure it out on the fly as i'm taking a shower it's a hundred percent based on the weather that day there's nothing worse than when i have to wear something for a future like you know in the summer you have to wear fall and it's like they want to take my picture outside and it's a hundred degrees um that makes me crazy i've had to do that several times Again, it's nice to be asked, but it just is so annoying to me to have to think about that because it's like, I understand, like when a publication or something goes out, it's got to look appropriate. But I hate thinking about clothes ahead of time or in a different way. I just like to wear whatever I'm feeling at that moment. And I tend to just, with having so many clothes, I pretty much make a decision and stick with it. I, I, in the old days, it used to be like when I was younger and I didn't maybe have as many things, I could go, I could have a meltdown and try a million things on and throw them off and like try again. You know, I haven't done that in a long time, but I've done that in my life. Do you think your taste means that you buy clothes that sort of in general work with each other? Or do you tend to go for sort of wild things that don't really match anything else? No, I think of everything that I have as being a continuous thought. So while it could appear that I have, you know, okay, here's an example. Like I just bought a pair of 
of pants and they were um, kind of oversized, you know, meaning like not slim, not super wide leg, but not. And I was like, oh, I got to get them tailored. And then I was like, put them on and, and they were like, they were too long, but they, and I was like, no, like I don't need to tailor them in that way that I've for the past, you know, I don't know, 12 or 13 years been cropping all of my pants and having them taper at the bottom. And, and I was like, no, it, they look kind of nighties and maybe they don't look that flattering, but they're kind of comfortable. And it is kind of a new, like, I do think that the evolution is that things are getting looser, longer. And I do think that's a kind of, I hate to use the word trend, but I guess that's a, the next step. Um, I think crop pants will always be good and I will always have crop pants in my wardrobe, but you know, in the, in the way that it, they used to all be that way. Now it's like, okay, maybe some will be a little wider, a little longer. And so, you know, I just think that as things evolve, you sometimes wish, Oh, I had something else in the same fit, you know, the same, but you, you know, again, that's just an acquisition thing. Then, things seem to sort of like roll in that direction. And then maybe you sort of move other things to the side and you don't wear them as frequently or you put them in storage. But I do think that things come and go in terms of proportion is what keeps it moving, if that makes sense. I noticed in 2013, you described your wardrobe as uh, a garden of clothes. Is that still valid? Well, I think I was making a gardening analogy in general about a wardrobe that it's like that a wardrobe can be like gardening. Um, meaning that sometimes you have to sort of like, okay, just what we're talking about. If you're sort of like wanting to have things of a certain kind of proportion or a certain idea, you're not going to rush out and buy all new clothes and everything's going to be in that whatever that look or that idea is. But like with gardening, you might sort of plant some seeds, get some things going. And then over time you understand like, oh, wow, look what I've got. Like I've got several things that fit that. Or as you start to, you know, tend to that garden, you might start to think about like things that, you know, could fulfill or could fill that niche or that look or that color or some, you know, some again proportion and then before you know it you'll have some choices there hmm. now there's a lot of talk nowadays about slow fashion and sustainability is that something you pay much attention to well i mean only insofar as uh you know no i can't say that it's been like my life's work the way that a lot of you know people are very concerned about and and rightfully so i see the the just the tremendous waste and you know the, just how revolting you know so many things have been in our in our, and including my own consumption and i you know this idea of fast fashion that you know you just buy something cheap or you buy several of something rather than one nice thing I, again, it, I understand when you're really young or if you are experimental or you're trying to find your voice, it, it can be a great thing. And I don't ever, would never want to tell someone don't buy clothes like that because, you know, usually it's economically driven. Like you need, you know, you don't have the budget to buy expensive things. 
but but when people do that at the expense of you know maybe thinking about like what the choices that they make are that if you buy something that's a five dollar t-shirt do you really think that the labor that produced that is being paid a fair wage i can assure you it is not <laughs> they are not um but again, it's it's really hard if you're talking about like what people can and can't afford. But I do think that like with choosing to use plastic water bottles, you can make choices. And maybe, you know, in some cases you decide I'm not going to spend my money in that channel with those kind of people doing that thing. I'd rather buy uh you know, consignment merchandise, you know, things like from that have maybe been like, I mean, I'm a, <laughs> anybody who gets stuff that I've had is probably pretty lucky because I do consign a lot. I also think it's kind of my, let's say responsibility because I'd much rather see a kid spend some money on better designer product that they, you know, bought at a consignment store or on eBay or Grailed or one of these other sites because it's they're going to get something that's a better value and they're probably going to look much better in it than I ever did. Um, and, you know, and again, there are many people like me who consign a lot and there's a lot of great things to be had, you know, shopping on, you know, 60 to 70% off from specialty and department stores, buying better brands is a, is for me a, something that if I'm a young person, I would, I used to do that. And I, you know, would encourage people to do that rather than buy a lot of cheap shit from a fast fashion place. Now, if you know, sometimes you have to wait, but I think it's better. That's, that's my idea of sustainability, but I understand that's not, you know, the only, there are, you know, uh, environmental impacts. And I think that the other big one is the, um, the societal impact of the people producing garments, you know, being paid fair wages. It's a huge, huge problem in, you know, in this fashion ecosystem. It certainly is. And it's a massively complicated problem as well. Absolutely. It's, you know, and again, someone, some asshole like me pontificating about it is not going to make it better. But I think if all of us are, at least aware we have a better chance at doing something about it i wanted to ask you one question now as one not so tall man to another man who is not so <laughs> tall according to wikipedia at least and uh, one of us is certainly more muscular than the other it's not me um do you find it's difficult to find clothes that fit yes <laughs> my entire life that's been that way but all people find <laughs> you know it doesn't matter if you're extremely tall it doesn't matter if you're extremely skinny thin it doesn't matter you know there are i mean most people generally have fit issues obviously if you're six foot even or if you're five eleven and you you know sort of weigh that exact median weight okay probably you're not going to have as many issues as someone like me but that, that's been, again, the, I don't want to say the secret because I don't have the secret, but that's been maybe the key to understanding or for me to understand what I've been doing for the past almost you know, 35 years working in this business is 
understanding the clothes that are going to fit me better and sticking with that and not trying not to force a round peg in a square hole or a square peg in a round hole. Because, you know, you can't, not everybody's going to look good in everything. Some brands, some designers look better on certain body types than others. And once you are honest with yourself about what your body type is and you find those places brands or designers or styles within a brand that fit your body type the best, it's just simpler. You don't have to torture yourself with trying to be all things to all people or, you know, as we say in AA, going to the hardware store for oranges. It's like, you just know to like, stay away from that and then you'll be fine. And, you know, you're going to play in this sandbox, not that one. Um, but these things take time and you have to be willing to, or you have to be interested enough to sort of try to figure that out or observe people who have tried to figure that out. Listen to people who have tried to figure that, that out. Do you find you can sort of judge that yourself or do you need others to sort of do it for you? No, I can do that myself. <laughs> um but again, it's trial and error. I mean, I can usually look at something, a garment, and pretty much understand mm, that's not going to work for me. And I'm always pleasantly surprised when I'm wrong, because it can happen when I'm like, I put something on, I'm like, oh, shit, this does look good. You know, and sometimes it's like, you know, I've got it in my head, it's not going to work. And, you know, and many times it doesn't work. <laughs> um, but sometimes it does, and I'm always pleasantly surprised when that happens. There's nothing, there's nothing better. It's like I know women go through this, and I think most men, if they were honest about it, are the same way. It's like everybody wants to look better. Nobody wants to look dumpier or, you know, fatter or, you know, everybody – Michael Kors has always said this. Everybody wants to look, you know, thinner and taller. And it's true. I mean, I think with clothes, like you just, you know, there's, there are certain, there are many, that's why men look so great in suits because it's a single color monochromatic The the jacket hides a multitude of sins and you instantly look more powerful. You stand up a little straighter, you know, you just look better. So and, and again, whether you would articulate it, and most men would not articulate it that way, that's in fact what it does. And that is the power of, you know, of dressing. And, you know, this whole notion that we've, I mean, this is an old story, it's gone on for, you know, 15 years now, but this idea that as we've casualized the workplace and men walked away from suits, it was the biggest disservice that ever happened. They thought it was going to be the most liberating thing. And in fact, it's been the biggest mind fuck because they don't know how to look equally as good in casual clothes. Okay. Um, I asked a couple of friends if they had any questions for you. This is just a sort of little pause question. Yeah. And um, one of them would like me to ask you, uh, does age matter when it comes to style? I mean, I don't think so. But yes, occasionally, you know, you could say like, ooh, that maybe is a little jeune, a little young, you know. Um, so I, I, I think it, it's more mindset than age, but the two do tend to go hand in hand. And I usually think that's just a comfort thing. And it, it usually has to do with, 
especially in women, you know, women's wear, but even in men's wear has to do with like, how much are you revealing of your skin is usually the sort of the, you know, the thing. And I would always say err on the side of classic. Cover it up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, the, the, the other brief question was, what does Nick Worcester smell like? Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> no, I, well, here's the thing. I don't wear a lot of fragrance, but the one fragrance that I've worn for at least 25 years, if not longer, is, um, or when they first came out, I think it was around 25 years ago, are diptyque uh, fragrances, the fig one, the Philosicos. Uh, and that sort of segues us nicely into the self-care segment. I noticed in a New York Times article recently where you were featured, you're spending a fair chunk of money on um, personal trainer and uh, age management doctor and so forth. Is this something that has sort of crept in as you grow older? And I suppose it also comes into the keeping a stable weight, um, looking good for the gram, um, quite a complex thing, really. Well, yeah, yeah, they all do go hand in hand. I mean, I think that anyone who works in the fashion world or the fashion business or, you know, around clothes has always understood that if you, you know, are in better shape, if, meaning if your weight is under control, if you take care of your body in a certain way, then you're going to look better in clothes and you're consequently going to feel better. Now, that's sometimes easier said than done. And even I, in the past, you know, 10 years, but certainly in my entire life, have, you know, I don't want to say fought, but have had, you know, issues around um, weight and body image. And and so it's not, I, I, I don't, I think, you know, obviously, Men, gay men and women understand this inherently, let's say the best, but I think every man can go through some version of that, even if they don't have the language to articulate it the same way that a woman or I might. But yes, I think that I understood, again, I'm not saying that it's only gay men do this, but as a gay man, you know, understood in my 20s that like, if you want to get laid, you need to look a certain way. And many straight men have figured this out too. Um, so it's been a, you know, I've worked out basically constantly since I was 27 years old, since 1987. But again, I used to take it or leave it. Um, I didn't necessarily understand as I do now that um, now there are benefits outside of aesthetics that, you know, as your body ages, you really do need to take care of yourself because, you know, your system, your body's are going to fail the older we get. And that's just a natural fact of life. That's where the age management thing comes in. You know, and I, I mean, everybody's got their own journey and their own opinion. And I know that there are, you know, as many doctors who can say, this is a good idea for you. There can be just as many doctors who say it's a bad idea for you. So you really have to, you know, do, I'm not a doctor and I would never want to advise what one should do. But what I would say is you've got to speak to your doctor or find doctors who can, uh, you know, give you the either the peace of mind or, you know, give you the reasons why you should or shouldn't go down that, that path. But I think everybody can generally benefit from eating well, 
and exercise. I mean, I just think that's a basic tenant of age that if you do, <laughs> you'll be much happier in the end, you know, both physically and mentally. And yes, I spent a lot of money on it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, if you're spending all the money on the clothes and on looking good and that, I mean, I just know for my own sake that uh, steady weight would be a huge advantage because I just hate it when my favorite shirt is suddenly too tight or it's no problem losing a bit of weight, but it's hard to get it off again. Well, and also, you know, trainers have told me this, it's much easier to maintain than it is to lose. So if you can find yourself in a place where you're able to lose some weight or get to a weight that you're, you know, that you're really happy at, it's much easier to stay there than it is to get there. Hmm. Now, at some point, um, you um, realized sobriety was a, a good thing and you later gave up smoking. Um, was that, for what reason was that? <laughs> so that I could get a facelift basically. But I also knew that um, that smoking, so the problem with smoking is that um, you can't do it, I can't do it the way I want, which is all the time. You know, so many places now don't allow for such things. And I really saw the handwriting on the wall that apartment buildings in New York were going to start outlawing it. And if I couldn't smoke in my house, what would be the point? So it was really kind of a, and it really has become true. Not all buildings have this rule, but many, there are now more buildings that don't allow smoking in New York than allow smoking. So it's just a matter of time before it's completely outlawed in public building. Now, if you had a house, a standalone house, I'm sure that you can do whatever you want there. But when you share a common space with people, it's understandable that it's going to eventually be un sustainable to have that keep going. So I knew that was going to happen. And I do much better when I decide something than when someone tells me I have to do something. So and, it, you know, and also, I smoked for 24 years, like I just, I was finally tired of it. So but it took it didn't happen like, Oh, I'm gonna stop smoking. It, you know, kicking and screaming and fits and starts and it takes what it takes. But that's been my experience with that. Mm. On to your current current endeavors. We briefly touched upon it a bit earlier with uh, Nick Wooster becoming an influencer, uh, but now it's nowadays it's sort of called paid partnerships, isn't it? How how do they work? Well, I mean, again, I only know how they work for me. You know, my, I have an agent who uh, has a team of people who do an amazing job of finding and and talking to a lot of different people. Some people also come through me like via direct messages or email or something and I will forward them on to my agent and then they, you know, sort of like discuss the terms and, and figure out if it's the right thing for me to do. And um, it's been an amazing, I'm so grateful that I have that resource available. But I think that it's like anything, you know, brands are constantly looking for people who can, you know, help communicate or personify or, you know, speak for them. And there are many people because, you know, in a way, what people who are doing this kind of thing are kind of 
taking the place of what publications used to do 30 years ago, you know? Um, and I, again, I'm not a magazine and I'm not, and I, I still find a lot of value in, you know, editors and, and journalists who, you know, actually do the work they are professionals at doing, but by the same token, um, there are people, you know, that others find, it's like a celebrity endorsement. I mean, I don't think of myself as a celebrity, but there've always been, there's always been that idea that someone else can sort of, you know, speak for or embody the idea of, uh, of a brand for someone and people respond to that. And, you know, I'm just grateful that there is an economy out there that allows me to participate in that at this stage of my life. Hmm. Now, I mentioned uh, in the intro that um, you are now also available available as a digitally collectible Lego figure, uh, an NFT, a non-fungible token. Now, that must be the weirdest thing you've done. Well, I would say it is, and I totally don't understand it, except that it was offered as an idea. And I was like, okay. Um, you know, and again, not because I think I'm going to get rich from it. It's just that it's like, something that's part of the conversation of what's happening today. So it's like, okay, let's do that. Um, it's to help a brand promote their line of basics. And instead of me taking a picture of myself in a, in a hoodie, it's like, okay, that's, I mean, they came up with this concept, but they wanted to create a, a character that, you know, could live outside of, and, you know, and, and we'll see. I don't necessarily know what any of this means, but I know that it's something and I'm happy to be, like I said, being part of a conversation. But what it means, I don't really know. I think it shows that you are bang up to date and totally current with, uh, with the trends. <laughs> like I said, I'm just happy to be, you know, be doing something. Is there anything you'd like to mention? I know. I think, you know, thank you for asking me. And uh, I'll be curious to hear how it comes out and, you know, what feedback you get. Okay, Nick. This has been a total pleasure. Yeah, thank and, you. And um, bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> bye. <laughs> thank you, Nick. And that concludes this week's episode of Carmology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Thanks to Nick Worcester for being the guest this week. You can find him on Instagram as Nick Worcester and his website at nickworcester.com. If you'd like to get in touch with me, it's uh, wellrestad at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram as wellrestad and the blog at wellrestad.com. If you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please do get in touch. That would be great. And uh, if you enjoyed this, please do re leave a review on Apple Podcast and give a rating. It really helps. And it's really hard to get these reviews because everyone thinks that everyone else will do it. So please do. Okay, catch a new episode next week. And until then, enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself.